BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Chapter 9 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter 9. An Unwelcome Lover and a Welcome Friend. The second term at Redmond sped as quickly as had the first, actually whizzed away, Philippa said. Anne enjoyed it thoroughly in all its phases—the stimulating class rivalry, the making and deepening of new and helpful friendships, the gay little social stunts, the doings of the various societies of which she was a member, the widening of horizons and interests. She studied hard, for she had made up her mind to win the Thorburn Scholarship in English. This being won meant that she could come back to Redmond the next year without trenching on Marilla's small savings, something Anne was determined she would not do. Gilbert, too, was in full chase after a scholarship, but found plenty of time for frequent calls at thirty-eight St. John's. He was Anne's escort at nearly all the college affairs, and she knew that their names were coupled in Redmond gossip. Anne raged over this, but was helpless. She could not cast an old friend like Gilbert aside, especially when he had grown suddenly wise and wary, as behooved him in the dangerous proximity of more than one Redmond youth, who would gladly have taken his place by the side of the slender, red-haired coed, whose gray eyes were as alluring as stars of evening. Anne was never attended by the crowd of willing victims who hovered around Philippa's conquering march through her freshman year. But there was a lanky, brainy freshie, a jolly little round sophomore, and a tall, learned junior, who all liked to call at thirty-eight St. John's, and talk over ologies and isms, as well as lighter subjects with Anne, in the becushioned parlour of that domicile. Gilbert did not love any of them, and he was exceedingly careful to give none of them the advantage over him by any untimely display of his real feelings Anneward. To her he had become again the boy-comrade of Avonlea days and as such could hold his own against any smitten swain who had so far entered the lists against him. As a companion, Anne honestly acknowledged nobody could be so satisfactory as Gilbert. She was very glad, so she told herself, that he had evidently dropped all nonsensical ideas, though she spent considerable time secretly wondering why. Only one disagreeable incident marred that winter. Charlie Sloane, sitting bolt upright on Miss Ada's most dearly beloved cushion, asked Anne one night if she would promise to become Mrs. Charlie Sloane some day. Coming after Billy Andrews' proxy effort, this was not quite the shock to Anne's romantic sensibilities that it would otherwise have been, but it was certainly another heart-rending disillusion. She was angry, too, for she felt that she had never given Charlie the slightest encouragement to suppose such a thing possible. 
But what could you expect of a Sloane, as Mrs. Rachel Lynde would ask scornfully? Charlie's whole attitude—tone, air, words—fairly reeked with Sloanishness. He was conferring a great honour, no doubt whatever about that. And when Anne, utterly insensible to the honour, refused him, as delicately and considerately as she could, for even a Sloane had feelings which ought not to be unduly lacerated, Sloanishness still further betrayed itself. Charlie certainly did not take his dismissal as Anne's imaginary rejected suitors did. Instead he became angry and showed it. He said two or three quite nasty things, Anne's temper flashed up mutinously, and she retorted with a cutting little speech whose keenness pierced even Charlie's protective slownishness and reached the quick. He caught up his hat and flung himself out of the house with a very red face. Anne rushed upstairs, falling twice over Miss Ada's cushions on the way, and threw herself on her bed, in tears of humiliation and rage. Had she actually stooped to quarrel with a Sloane? Was it possible anything Charlie Sloane could say had power to make her angry? Oh, this was degradation indeed, worse even than being the rival of Nettie Blewett. I wish I need never see the horrible creature again, she sobbed vindictively into her pillows. She could not avoid seeing him again, but the outraged Charlie took care that it should not be at very close quarters. Mercedes' cushions were henceforth safe from his depredations, and when he met Anne on the street, or in Redmond's halls, his bow was icy in the extreme. Relations between these two old schoolmates continued to be thus strained for nearly a year. Then Charlie transferred his blighted affections to a round, rosy, snub-nosed, blue-eyed little sophomore, who appreciated them as they deserved, whereupon he forgave Anne and condescended to be civil to her again, in a patronizing manner intended to show her just what she had lost. One day Anne scurried excitedly into Priscilla's room. "'Read that!' she cried, tossing Priscilla a letter. "'It's from Stella, and she's coming to Redmond next year. And what do you think of her idea? I think it's a perfectly splendid one, if we can only carry it out. Do you suppose we can, Pris?' "'I'll be better able to tell you when I find out what it is,' said Priscilla, casting aside a Greek lexicon and taking up Stella's letter. Stella Maynard had been one of their chums at Queen's Academy, and had been teaching school ever since. "'But I'm going to give it up, Anne dear,' she wrote, "'and go to college next year.' As I took the third year at Queen's, I can enter the sophomore year. I'm tired of teaching in a back-country school. Some day I'm going to write a treatise on The Trials of a Country Schoolmarm. It will be a harrowing bit of realism. It seems to be the prevailing impression that we live in clover, and have nothing to do but draw our quarter's salary. My treatise shall tell the truth about us. Why, if a week should pass without someone telling me that I am doing easy work for big pay, I would conclude that I might as well order my ascension robe immediately and to once. Well, you get your money easy, some ratepayer will tell me condescendingly. All you have to do is sit there and hear lessons. I used to argue the matter at first, but I am wiser now. Facts are stubborn things, but as someone has wisely said, not half so stubborn as fallacies. So I only smile loftily now in eloquent silence. Why, I have nine grades in my school, and I have to teach a little of everything, from investigating the interiors of earthworms to the study of the solar system. My youngest pupil is four. His mother sends him to school to get him out of the way, and my oldest twenty. It suddenly struck him that it would be easier to go to school and get an education than follow the plough any longer. In the wild effort to cram all sorts of research into six hours a day, I don't wonder if the children feel a little like the boy who was taken to see the biograph. I have to look for what's coming next before I know what went last, he complained. I feel like that myself. And the letters I get, Anne! Tommy's mother writes me that Tommy is not coming on in arithmetic as fast as she would like. He is only in simple reduction yet, and Johnny Johnson is in fractions, and Johnny isn't half as smart as her Tommy, and she can't understand it. 
and Susie's father wants to know why Susie can't write a letter without misspelling half the words, and Dick's aunt wants me to change his seat because that bad brown boy he is sitting with is teaching him to say naughty words. As to the financial part—but I'll not begin on that. Those whom the gods wish to destroy they first make country schoolmarms. There, I feel better after that growl. After all, I've enjoyed these past two years. But I'm coming to Redmond. And now, Anne, I've a little plan. You know how I loathe boarding. I've boarded for four years, and I'm so tired of it. I don't feel like enduring three years more of it. Now why can't you and Priscilla and I club together, rent a little house somewhere in Kingsport, and board ourselves? It would be cheaper than any other way. Of course we would have to have a housekeeper, and I have one ready on the spot. You've heard me speak of Aunt Jamesina. She's the sweetest aunt that ever lived, in spite of her name. She can't help that. She was called Jamesina because her father, whose name was James, was drowned at sea a month before she was born. I always call her Aunt Jimsy. Well, her only daughter has recently married and gone to the foreign mission field. Aunt Jamesina is left alone in a great big house, and she is horribly lonesome. She will come to Kingsport and keep house for us if we want her, and I know you'll both love her. The more I think of the plan, the more I like it. We could have such good independent times. Now, if you and Priscilla agree to it, wouldn't it be a good idea for you who are on the spot to look around and see if you can find a suitable house this spring? That would be better than leaving it till the fall. If you could get a furnished one, so much the better, but if not we can scare up a few sticks of furniture between us and old family friends with attics. Anyhow, decide as soon as you can and write me so that Aunt Jamesina will know what plans to make for next year." "'I think it's a good idea,' said Priscilla. "'So do I,' agreed Anne delightedly. Of course, we have a nice boarding-house here, but when all's said and done a boarding-house isn't home. So let's go house-hunting at once before exams come on." "'I'm afraid it will be hard enough to get a really suitable house,' warned Priscilla. Don't expect too much, Anne. Nice houses and nice localities will probably be away beyond our means. We'll likely have to content ourselves with a shabby little place on some street whereon live people whom to know is to be unknown, and make life inside compensate for the outside." Accordingly they went house-hunting. But to find just what they wanted proved even harder than Priscilla had feared. Houses there were galore, furnished and unfurnished, but one was too big, another too small, this one too expensive, that one too far from Redmond. Exams were on and over. The last week of the term came, and still their house of dreams, as Anne called it, remained a castle in the air. "'We shall have to give up and wait till the fall, I suppose,' said Priscilla wearily, as they rambled through the park on one of April's daring days of breeze and blue, when the harbour was creaming and shimmering beneath the pearl-hued mists floating over it. "'We may find some shack to shelter us then, and if not, boarding-houses we shall have always with us.' "'I'm not going to worry about it just now, anyway, and spoil this lovely afternoon,' said Anne, gazing around her with delight. The fresh, chill air was faintly charged with the aroma of pine-balsam, and the sky above was crystal clear and blue, a great inverted cup of blessing. Spring is singing in my blood to-day, and the lure of April is abroad on the air. I'm seeing visions and dreaming dreams, Pris. That's because the wind is from the west. I do love the west wind. It sings of hope and gladness, doesn't it?' When the east wind blows, I always think of sorrowful rain on the eaves and sad waves on a grey shore. When I get old, I shall have rheumatism when the wind is east. And isn't it jolly when you discard furs and winter garments for the first time and sally forth like this in spring attire?" laughed Priscilla. Don't you feel as if you had been made over new? Everything is new in the spring, said Anne. Springs themselves are always so new, too. No spring is ever just like any other spring. It always has something of its own to be its own peculiar sweetness. See how green the grass is around that little pond, and how the willow buds are bursting. And exams are over and gone. 
The time of convocation will come soon—next Wednesday. This day next week we'll be home." "'I'm glad,' said Anne dreamily. There are so many things I want to do. I want to sit on the back porch steps and feel the breeze blowing down over Mr. Harrison's fields. I want to hunt ferns in the haunted wood and gather violets in Violet Vale. Do you remember the day of our golden picnic, Priscilla? I want to hear the frogs singing and the poplars whispering. But I've learned to love Kingsport, too, and I'm glad I'm coming back next fall. If I hadn't won the Thorburn, I don't believe I could have. I couldn't take any of Marilla's little hoard." "'If we could only find a house,' sighed Priscilla. Look over there at Kingsport, Anne. Houses, houses everywhere, and not one for us. Stop it, Pris. The best is yet to be. Like the old Roman, we'll find a house or build one. On a day like this there's no such word as fail in my bright lexicon." They lingered in the park until sunset, living in the amazing miracle and glory and wonder of the springtide, and they went home as usual by way of Spofford Avenue, that they might have the delight of looking at Patty's place. "'I feel as if something mysterious were going to happen right away, by the pricking of my thumbs,' said Anne, as they went up the slope. "'It's a nice story-bookish feeling. Why—why—why, why, why, Priscilla Grant, look over there and tell me if it is true, or am I seeing things?' Priscilla looked. Anne's thumbs and eyes had not deceived her. Over the arched gateway of Patty's place dangled a little modest sign. It said, To let. Furnished. Inquire within. Priscilla, said Anne in a whisper, do you suppose it's possible that we could rent Patty's place? No, I don't, averred Priscilla. It would be too good to be true. Fairy tales don't happen nowadays. I won't hope, Anne. The disappointment would be too awful to bear. They're sure to want more for it than we can afford. Remember, it's on Spofford Avenue. We must find out, anyhow," said Anne resolutely. It's too late to call this evening, but we'll come tomorrow. Oh, Pris, if we can get this darling spot! I've always felt that my fortunes were linked with Patty's place ever since I saw it first. End of chapter 9. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 10 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter 10. Patty's Place. The next evening found them treading resolutely the herringbone walk through the tiny garden. The April wind was filling the pine-trees with its roundelay, and the grove was alive with robins, great, plump, saucy fellows, strutting along the paths. The girls rang rather timidly, and were admitted by a grim and ancient handmaiden. The door opened directly into a large living-room, where by a cheery little fire sat two other ladies, both of whom were also grim and ancient. Except that one looked to be about seventy and the other fifty, there seemed little difference between them. Each had amazingly big, light blue eyes behind steel-rimmed spectacles. Each wore a cap and a grey shawl. Each was knitting without haste and without rest. Each rocked placidly and looked at the girls without speaking, and just behind each sat a large white china dog, with round green spots all over it, a green nose and green ears. Those dogs captured Anne's fancy on the spot. They seemed like the twin guardian deities of Patty's place. For a few moments nobody spoke. The girls were too nervous to find words, and neither the ancient ladies nor the china dogs seemed conversationally inclined. Anne glanced about the room. What a dear place it was! Another door opened out of it directly into the pine grove, and the robins came boldly up on the very step. The floor was spotted with round braided mats, such as Marilla made at Green Gables, but which were considered out of date everywhere else, even in Avonlea. 
And yet here they were on Spofford Avenue. A big, polished grandfather's clock ticked loudly and solemnly in a corner. There were delightful little cupboards over the mantelpiece, behind whose glass doors gleamed quaint bits of china. The walls were hung with old prints and silhouettes. In one corner the stairs went up, and at the first low turn was a long window with an inviting seat. It was all just as Anne had known it must be. By this time the silence had grown too dreadful, and Priscilla nudged Anne to intimate that she must speak. "'We—we we saw by your sign that this house is to let,' said Anne faintly, addressing the older lady, who was evidently Miss Patty Spofford. "'Oh, yes,' said Miss Patty. "'I intended to take that sign down to-day.' "'Then—then we are too late,' said Anne sorrowfully. "'You've let it to someone else?' "'No, but we have decided not to let it at all.' "'Oh, I'm so sorry,' exclaimed Anne impulsively. "'I love this place so. I did hope we could have got it.' Then did Miss Patty lay down her knitting, take off her specs, rub them, put them on again, and for the first time look at Anne as at a human being. The other lady followed her example so perfectly that she might as well have been a reflection in a mirror. "'You love it,' said Miss Patty, with emphasis. "'Does that mean that you really love it, or that you merely like the looks of it?' The girls nowadays indulge in such exaggerated statements that one never can tell what they do mean. It wasn't so in my young days. Then a girl did not say she loved turnips in just the same tone as she might have said she loved her mother or her saviour. Anne's conscience bore her up. "'I really do love it,' she said gently. "'I've loved it ever since I saw it last fall. My two college chums and I want to keep house next year instead of boarding, so we're looking for a little place to rent, and when I saw that this house was to let I was so happy.' "'If you love it, you can have it,' said Miss Patty. "'Maria and I decided to-day that we would not let it, after all, because we did not like any of the people who have wanted it. We don't have to let it. We can afford to go to Europe even if we don't let it. It would help us out, but not for gold will I let my home pass into the possession of such people as have come here and looked at it. You are different. I believe you do love it, and will be good to it. You can have it. If—if if we can afford to pay what you ask for it,' hesitated Anne. Miss Patty named the amount required. Anne and Priscilla looked at each other. Priscilla shook her head. "'I'm afraid we can't afford quite so much,' said Anne, choking back her disappointment. "'You see, we are only college girls, and we are poor.' "'What were you thinking you could afford?' demanded Miss Patty, ceasing not to knit. Anne named her amount. Miss Patty nodded gravely. "'That will do. As I told you, it is not strictly necessary that we should let it at all. We are not rich, but we have enough to go to Europe on.' I have never been in Europe in my life, and never expected or wanted to go, but my niece there, Maria Spofford, has taken a fancy to go. Now you know a young person like Maria can't go globe-trotting alone." "'No, I, I suppose not,' murmured Anne, seeing that Miss Patty was quite solemnly in earnest. "'Of course not. So I have to go along to look after her. I expect to enjoy it, too. I am seventy years old, but I am not tired of living yet. I dare say I'd have gone to Europe before if the idea had occurred to me. We shall be away for two years, perhaps three. We sail in June, and we shall send you the key, and leave all in order for you to take possession when you choose. We shall pack away a few things we prize especially, but all the rest will be left." "'Will you leave the china dogs?' asked Anne timidly. "'Would you like me to?' "'Oh, indeed, yes. They're delightful.' A pleased expression came into Miss Patty's face. "'I think a great deal of those dogs,' she said proudly. "'They are over a hundred years old, and have sat on either side of this fireplace ever since my brother Aaron brought them from London fifty years ago. Spofford Avenue was called after my brother Aaron.' "'A fine man he was,' said Miss Maria, speaking for the first time. "'Ah, you don't see the like of him nowadays.' 
"'He was a good uncle to you, Maria,' said Miss Patty, with evident emotion. "'You do well to remember him.' "'I shall always remember him,' said Miss Maria solemnly. "'I can see him, this minute, standing there before that fire, with his hands under his coat-tails, beaming on us.' Miss Maria took out her handkerchief and wiped her eyes. But Miss Patty came resolutely back from the regions of sentiment to those of business. "'I shall leave the dogs where they are, if you will promise to be very careful of them,' she said. "'Their names are Gog and Magog. Gog looks to the right, and Magog to the left. And there's just one thing more. You don't object, I hope, to this house being called Patty's Place?' "'No, indeed. We think that is one of the nicest things about it.' "'You have sense, I see,' said Miss Patty, in a tone of great satisfaction. "'Would you believe it? All the people who came here to rent the house wanted to know if they couldn't take the name off the gate during their occupation of it. I told them roundly that the name went with the house. This has been Patty's place ever since my brother Aaron left it to me in his will, and Patty's place it shall remain until I die and Maria dies. After that happens, the next possessor can call it any fool name he likes," concluded Miss Patty, much as she might have said, after that, the deluge. And now, wouldn't you like to go over the house and see it all before we consider the bargain made? Further exploration still further delighted the girls. Besides the big living-room there was a kitchen and a small bedroom downstairs. Upstairs were three rooms, one large and two small. Anne took an especial fancy to one of the small ones, looking out into the big pines, and hoped it would be hers. It was papered in pale blue, and had a little old-timey toilet-table, with sconces for candles. There was a diamond-paned window with a seat under the blue muslin frills that would be a satisfying spot for studying or dreaming. "'It's all so delicious that I know we are going to wake up and find it a fleeting vision of the night,' said Priscilla as they went away. "'Miss Patty and Miss Maria are hardly such stuff as dreams are made of,' laughed Anne. "'Can you fancy them globe-trotting, especially in those shawls and caps?' "'I suppose they'll take them off when they really begin to trot,' said Priscilla. "'But I know they'll take their knitting with them everywhere. They simply couldn't be parted from it. They will walk about Westminster Abbey and knit, I feel sure. Meanwhile, Anne, we shall be living in Patty's place and on Spofford Avenue. I feel like a millionairess even now." "'I feel like one of the morning stars that sang for joy,' said Anne. Phil Gordon crept into thirty-eight St. John's that night and flung herself on Anne's bed. "'Girls, dear, I'm tired to death. I feel like the man without a country. Or was it without a shadow? I forget which. Anyway, I've been packing up. "'And I suppose you are worn out because you couldn't decide which things to pack first or where to put them?' laughed Priscilla. "'Exactly. And when I had got everything jammed in somehow, and my landlady and her maid had both sat on it while I locked it, I discovered I had packed a whole lot of things I wanted for convocation at the very bottom. I had to unlock the old thing and poke and dive into it for an hour before I fished out what I wanted. I would get hold of something that felt like what I was looking for, and I'd yank it up, and it would be something else.' No, Anne, I did not swear. I didn't say you did. Well, you looked it. But I admit my thoughts verged on the profane. And I have such a cold in the head, I can do nothing but sniffle, sigh, and sneeze. Isn't that alliterative agony for you? Queen Anne, do say something to cheer me up. Remember that next Thursday night you'll be back in the land of Alec and Alonzo, suggested Anne. Phil shook her head dolefully. More alliteration. No, I don't want Alec and Alonzo when I have a cold in the head. But what has happened to you two? Now that I look at you closely, you seem all lighted up with an internal iridescence. Why, you're actually shining! What's up?" "'We are going to live in Patty's place next winter,' said Anne triumphantly. "'Live, mark you, not board. We've rented it, and Stella Maynard is coming, and her aunt is going to keep house for us.' 
Phil bounced up, wiped her nose, and fell on her knees before Anne. "'Girls, girls, let me come, too. Oh, I'll be so good. If there's no room for me, I'll sleep in the little doghouse in the orchard. I've seen it. Only let me come. Get up, you goose. I won't stir off my marrow bones till you tell me I can live with you next winter.' Anne and Priscilla looked at each other. Then Anne said slowly, "'Phil, dear, we'd love to have you. But we may as well speak plainly. I'm poor. Pris is poor. Stella Maynard is poor. Our housekeeping will have to be very simple and our table plain. You'd have to live as we would. Now you are rich, and your boarding-house fare attests the fact." "'Oh, what do I care for that?' demanded Phil tragically. "'Better a dinner of herbs where your chums are than a stalled ox in a lonely boarding-house. Don't think I'm all stomach, girls. I'll be willing to live on bread and water with just a little jam if you'll let me come.' "'And then,' continued Anne, "'there will be a good deal of work to be done. Stella's aunt can't do it all. We all expect to have our chores to do. Now you—' "'Toil not, neither do I spin,' finished Philippa. "'But I'll learn to do things. You'll only have to show me once. I can make my own bed to begin with. And remember that, though I can't cook, I can keep my temper. That's something. And I never growl about the weather. That's more. Oh, please, please! I never wanted anything so much in my life. And this floor is awfully hard.' "'There's just one more thing,' said Priscilla resolutely. "'You, Phil, as all Redmond knows, entertain callers almost every evening. Now at Patty's place we can't do that. We have decided that we shall be at home to our friends on Friday evenings only. If you come with us, you'll have to abide by that rule." "'Well, you don't think I'll mind that, do you? Why, I'm glad of it. I knew I should have had some such rule myself, but I hadn't enough decision to make it or stick to it. When I can shuffle off the responsibility on you, it will be a real relief. If you won't let me cast in my lot with you, I'll die of the disappointment, and then I'll come back and haunt you. I'll camp on the very doorstep of Patty's place, and you won't be able to go out or come in without falling over my spook." Again Anne and Priscilla exchanged eloquent looks. "'Well,' said Anne, "'of course we can't promise to take you until we've consulted with Stella. But I don't think she'll object. And as far as we are concerned, you may come and glad welcome. If you get tired of our simple life, you can leave us, and no questions asked,' added Priscilla. Phil sprang up, hugged them both jubilantly, and went on her way rejoicing. I hope things will go all right," said Priscilla, soberly. We must make them go right," avowed Anne. I think Phil will fit into our happy little home very well. Oh, Phil's a dear to rattle around with and be chums. And of course the more there are of us, the easier it will be on our slim purses. But how will she be to live with? You have to summer and winter with anyone before you know if she's livable or not. Oh, well, we'll all be put to the test as far as that goes. And we must quit us like sensible folk, living and let live. Phil isn't selfish, though she's a little thoughtless, and I believe we will all get on beautifully in Patty's place. End of chapter 10. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 11 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter 11. The Round of Life. Anne was back in Avonlea with the luster of the Thorburn scholarship on her brow. People told her she hadn't changed much, in a tone which hinted they were surprised and a little disappointed she hadn't. Avonlea had not changed either. At least, so it seemed at first. But as Anne sat in the Green Gables pew on the first Sunday after her return, and looked over the congregation, she saw several little changes which, all coming home to her at once, made her realize that time did not quite stand still, even in Avonlea. A new minister was in the pulpit. 
In the pews, more than one familiar face was missing forever. Old Uncle Abe, his prophesying over and done with, Mrs. Peter Sloane, who had sighed, it was to be hoped, for the last time, Timothy Cotton, who, as Mrs. Rachel Lynde said, had actually managed to die at last, after practising at it for twenty years, and old Josiah Sloane, whom nobody knew in his coffin, because he had his whiskers neatly trimmed, were all sleeping in the little graveyard behind the church. And Billy Andrews was married to Nettie Blewett. They appeared out that Sunday. When Billy, beaming with pride and happiness, showed his beplumed and besilked bride into the Harmon Andrews pew, Anne dropped her lids to hide her dancing eyes. She recalled the stormy winter night of the Christmas holidays when Jane had proposed for Billy. He certainly had not broken his heart over his rejection. Anne wondered if Jane had also proposed to Nettie for him, or if he had mustered enough spunk to ask the fateful question himself. All the Andrews family seemed to share in his pride and pleasure, from Mrs. Harmon in the pew to Jane in the choir. Jane had resigned from the Avonlea school and intended to go west in the fall. "'Can't get a bow in Avonlea, that's what,' said Mrs. Rachel Lynde scornfully. "'Says she thinks she'll have better health out west. I never heard her health was poor before.' "'Jane is a nice girl,' Anne had said loyally. She never tried to attract attention, as some did. "'Oh, she never chased the boys, if that's what you mean,' said Mrs. Rachel. "'But she'd like to be married, just as much as anybody, that's what. What else would take her out west to some forsaken place whose only recommendation is that men are plenty and women scarce? Don't you tell me!' But it was not at Jane Anne gazed that day in dismay and surprise. It was at Ruby Gillis, who sat beside her in the choir. What had happened to Ruby? She was even handsomer than ever, but her blue eyes were too bright and lustrous, and the color of her cheeks was hectically brilliant. Besides, she was very thin. The hands that held her hymn-book were almost transparent in their delicacy. "'Is Ruby Gillis ill?' Anne asked of Mrs. Lynde, as they went home from church. "'Ruby Gillis is dying of galloping consumption.' said Mrs. Lynde bluntly. Everybody knows it except herself and her family. They won't give in. If you ask them, she's perfectly well. She hasn't been able to teach since she had that attack of congestion in the winter, but she says she's going to teach again in the fall, and she's after the White Sand School. She'll be in her grave, poor girl, when White Sand School opens, that's what." Anne listened in shocked silence. Ruby Gillis, her old school chum, dying? Could it be possible? Of late years they had grown apart, but the old tie of schoolgirl intimacy was there, and made itself felt sharply in the tug the news gave at Anne's heartstrings. Ruby, the brilliant, the merry, the coquettish. It was impossible to associate the thought of her with anything like death. She had greeted Anne with gay cordiality after church, and urged her to come up the next evening. "'I'll be away Tuesday and Wednesday evenings,' she had whispered triumphantly. "'There's a concert at Carmody and a party at White Sands. Herb Spencer is going to take me. He's my latest. Be sure to come up tomorrow. I'm dying for a good talk with you. I want to hear all about your doings at Redmond." Anne knew that Ruby meant that she wanted to tell Anne all about her own recent flirtations, but she promised to go, and Diana offered to go with her. "'I've been wanting to go see Ruby for a long while,' she told Anne, when they left Green Gables the next evening. But I really couldn't go alone. It's so awful to hear Ruby rattling on as she does, and pretending there is nothing the matter with her, even when she can hardly speak for coughing. She's fighting so hard for her life, and yet she hasn't any chance at all, they say." The girls walked silently down the red, twilight road. The robins were singing vespers in the high treetops, filling the golden air with their jubilant voices. The silver fluting of the frogs came from marshes and ponds. 
over fields where seeds were beginning to stir with life and thrill to the sunshine and rain that had drifted over them. The air was fragrant with the wild, sweet, wholesome smell of young raspberry copses. White mists were hovering in the silent hollows, and violet stars were shining bluely on the brooklands. "'What a beautiful sunset,' said Diana. "'Look, Anne, it's just like a land in itself, isn't it? That long, low back of purple cloud is the shore, and the clear sky further on is like a golden sea. If we could sail to it in the moonshine boat Paul rode of in his old composition, you remember, how nice it would be!' said Anne, rousing from her reverie. "'Do you think we could find all our yesterdays there, Diana? All our old springs and blossoms? The beds of flowers that Paul saw there are the roses that have bloomed for us in the past?' "'Don't,' said Diana. "'You make me feel as if we were old women with everything in life behind us.' "'I think I've almost felt as if we were since I heard about poor Ruby,' said Anne. "'If it is true that she is dying, any other sad thing might be true, too.' "'You don't mind calling in at Elisha Wright's for a moment, do you?' asked Diana. "'Mother asked me to leave this little dish of jelly for Aunt Atossa.' "'Who is Aunt Atossa?' "'Oh, haven't you heard? She's Mrs. Samson Coates of Spencervale, Mrs. Elisha Wright's aunt. She's father's aunt, too. Her husband died last winter, and she was left very poor and lonely, so the Wrights took her to live with them. Mother thought we ought to take her, but father put his foot down. Live with Aunt Atossa he would not.' "'Is she so terrible?' asked Anne absently. "'You'll probably see what she's like before we can get away,' said Diana significantly. "'Father says she has a face like a hatchet. It cuts the air. But her tongue is sharper still.' Late as it was, Aunt Atossa was cutting potato sets in the right kitchen. She wore a faded old wrapper, and her gray hair was decidedly untidy. Aunt Atossa did not like being caught in a kilter, so she went out of her way to be disagreeable. "'Oh, so you're Anne Shirley,' she said, when Diana introduced Anne. "'I've heard of you.' Her tone implied that she had heard nothing good. Mrs. Andrews was telling me you were home. She said you had improved a good deal. There was no doubt Aunt Atossa thought there was plenty of room for further improvement. She ceased not from cutting sets with much energy. "'Is it any use to ask you to sit down?' she inquired sarcastically. "'Of course, there's nothing very entertaining here for you. The rest are all away.' "'Mother sent you this little pot of rhubarb jelly,' said Diana pleasantly. She made it today and thought you might like some. "'Oh, thanks.' said Aunt Atossa sourly. I never fancy your mother's jelly. She always makes it too sweet. However, I'll try to worry some down. My appetite's been dreadful poor this spring. I'm far from well," continued Aunt Atossa solemnly. But still I keep a-doing. People who can't work aren't wanted here. If it isn't too much trouble, will you be condescending enough to set the jelly in the pantry? I'm in a hurry to get these spuds done to-night. I suppose you two ladies never do anything like this. You'd be afraid of spoiling your hands." I used to cut potato sets before we rented the farm," smiled Anne. "'I do it yet,' laughed Diana. "'I cut sets three days last week. Of course,' she added teasingly, "'I did my hands up in lemon juice and kid gloves every night after it.' Aunt Atossa sniffed. "'I suppose you got that notion out of some of those silly magazines you read so much of. I wonder your mother allows you. But she always spoiled you. We all thought when George married her she wouldn't be a suitable wife for him. Aunt Atossa sighed heavily, as if all forebodings upon the occasions of George Barry's marriage had been amply and darkly fulfilled. "'Going, are you?' she inquired, as the girls rose. "'Well, I suppose you can't find much amusement talking to an old woman like me. It's such a pity the boys ain't home. We want to run in and see Ruby Gillis a little while,' explained Diana. "'Oh, anything does for an excuse, of course,' said Aunt Atossa amiably. "'Just whip in and whip out before you have time to say how-do decently.' It's college airs, I suppose. 
You'd be wiser to keep away from Ruby Gillis. The doctors say consumption's catching. I always knew Ruby'd get something gadding off to Boston last fall for a visit. People who ain't content to stay home always catch something." "'People who don't go visiting catch things, too. Sometimes they even die,' said Diana solemnly. "'Then they don't have themselves to blame for it,' retorted Aunt Atossa triumphantly. "'I hear you are to be married in June, Diana.' "'There is no truth in that report,' said Diana, blushing. "'Well, don't put it off too long,' said Aunt Atossa significantly. "'You'll fade soon. You're all complexion and hair. And the rights are terrible fickle. You ought to wear a hat, Miss Shirley. Your nose is freckling scandalous. My, but you are red-headed. Well, I suppose we're all as the Lord made us. Give Marilla Cuthbert my respects. She's never been to see me since I come to Avonlea, but I suppose I oughtn't to complain. The Cuthberts always did think themselves a cut higher than anyone else around here." "'Oh, isn't she dreadful!' gasped Diana, as they escaped down the lane. "'She's worse than Miss Eliza Andrews,' said Anne. "'But then think of living all your life with a name like a Tossa. Wouldn't it sour almost anyone? She should have tried to imagine her name was Cordelia. It might have helped her a great deal. It certainly helped me in the days when I didn't like Anne." "'Josie Pye will be just like her when she grows up,' said Diana. Josie's mother and Aunt Atossa are cousins, you know. Oh, dear, I'm glad that's over. She's so malicious. She seems to put a bad flavor in everything. Father tells such a funny story about her. One time they had a minister in Spencervale who was a very good, spiritual man, but very deaf. He couldn't hear any ordinary conversation at all. Well, they used to have a prayer meeting on Sunday evenings, and all the church members present would get up and pray in turn, or say a few words on some Bible verse. But one evening Aunt Atossa bounced up. She didn't either pray or preach. Instead, she lit into everybody else in the church and gave them a fearful raking down, calling them right out by name, and telling them how they all had behaved, and casting up all the quarrels and scandals of the past ten years. Finally, she wound up by saying that she was disgusted with Spencervale Church, and she never meant to darken its door again, and she hoped a fearful judgment would come upon it. Then she sat down, out of breath, and the minister, who hadn't heard a word, she said, immediately remarked in a very devout voice, Amen. The Lord grant our dear sister's prayer. You ought to hear Father tell the story." "'Speaking of stories, Diana,' remarked Anne in a significant, confidential tone, "'do you know that lately I have been wondering if I could write a short story—a story that would be good enough to be published?' "'Why, of course you could,' said Diana, after she had grasped the amazing suggestion. "'You used to write perfectly thrilling stories years ago in our old story club.' "'Well, I hardly meant one of that kind of stories,' smiled Anne. I've been thinking about it a little of late, but I'm almost afraid to try, for if I should fail it would be too humiliating." I heard Priscilla say once that all Mrs. Morgan's first stories were rejected, but I'm sure yours wouldn't be, Anne, for it's likely editors have more sense nowadays. Margaret Burton, one of the junior girls at Redmond, wrote a story last winter, and it was published in The Canadian Woman. I really do think I could write one at least as good. And will you have it published in The Canadian Woman? I might try one of the bigger magazines first. It all depends on what kind of a story I write. What is it to be about? I don't know yet. I want to get hold of a good plot. I believe this is very necessary from an editor's point of view. The only thing I've settled on is the heroine's name. It is to be Avril Lester. Rather pretty, don't you think? Don't mention this to anyone, Diana. I haven't told anybody but you and Mr. Harrison. He wasn't very encouraging. He said there was far too much trash written nowadays as it was, and he'd expected something better of me after a year at college. What does Mr. Harrison know about it?" demanded Diana scornfully. They found the Gillis home gay with lights and callers. Leonard Kimball of Spencervale and Morgan Bell of Carmody were glaring at each other across the parlour. 
Several merry girls had dropped in. Ruby was dressed in white, and her eyes and cheeks were very brilliant. She laughed and chattered incessantly, and after the other girls had gone, she took Anne upstairs to display her new summer dresses. "'I've a blue silk to make up yet, but it's a little heavy for summer wear. I think I'll leave it until the fall. I'm going to teach him white sands, you know. How do you like my hat? That one you had on in church yesterday was real dinky, but I like something brighter for myself. Did you notice those two ridiculous boys downstairs? They've both come determined to sit each other out. I don't care a single bit about either of them, you know. Herb Spencer is the one I like. Sometimes I really do think he's Mr. Right. At Christmas I thought the Spencervale schoolmaster was that, but I found out something about him that turned me against him. He nearly went insane when I turned him down. I wish those two boys hadn't come tonight. I wanted to have a nice good talk with you, Anne, and tell you such heaps of things. You and I were always good chums, weren't we?" Ruby slipped her arm about Anne's waist with a shallow little laugh. But just for a moment their eyes met, and behind all the luster of Ruby's Anne saw something that made her heart ache. "'Come up often, won't you, Anne?' whispered Ruby. "'Come alone. I want you.' "'Are you feeling quite well, Ruby?' "'Me? Why, I'm perfectly well. I never felt better in my life. Of course that congestion last winter pulled me down a little. But just see my color. I don't look much like an invalid, I'm sure.' Ruby's voice was almost sharp. She pulled her arm away from Anne, as if in resentment, and ran downstairs, where she was gayer than ever, apparently so much absorbed in bantering her two swains, that Diana and Anne felt rather out of it, and soon went away. End of chapter 11 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 12 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter 12. Avril's Atonement. What are you dreaming of, Anne? The two girls were loitering one evening in a fairy hollow of the brook. Ferns nodded in it, and little grasses were green, and wild pears hung finely scented white curtains around it. Anne roused herself from her reverie with a happy sigh. I was thinking out my story, Diana. "'Oh, have you really begun it?' cried Diana, all alight with eager interest in a moment. "'Yes. I have only a few pages written, but I have it all pretty well thought out. I've had such a time to get a suitable plot. None of the plots that suggested themselves suited a girl named Avril.' "'Couldn't you have changed her name?' "'No, the thing was impossible. I tried to, but I couldn't do it, any more than I could change yours. Avril was so real to me that no matter what other name I tried to give her, I just thought of her as Avril behind it all.' But finally I got a plot that matched her. Then came the excitement of choosing names for all my characters. You have no idea how fascinating that is. I've lain awake for hours thinking over those names. The hero's name is Percival Dalrymple. Have you named all the characters? asked Diana wistfully. If you hadn't, I was going to ask you to let me name one, just some unimportant person. I'd feel as if I had a share in the story then. "'You may name the little hired boy who lived with the Lesters,' conceded Anne. "'He is not very important, but he is the only one left unnamed.' "'Call him—Raymond Fitzosborne,' suggested Diana, who had a store of such names laid away in her memory, relics of the old story club, which she and Anne and Jane Andrews and Ruby Gillis had had in their school days. Anne shook her head doubtfully. "'I'm afraid that is too aristocratic a name for a chore boy, Diana. I couldn't imagine a Fitzosborne feeding pigs and picking up chips, could you?' Diana didn't see why, if you had an imagination at all, you couldn't stretch it to that extent. 
But probably Anne knew best, and the chore boy was finally christened Robert Ray, to be called Bobby should occasion require. "'How much do you suppose you'll get for it?' asked Diana. But Anne had not thought about this at all. She was in pursuit of fame, not filthy lucre, and her literary dreams were as yet untainted by mercenary considerations. "'You'll let me read it, won't you?' pleaded Diana. "'When it is finished, I'll read it to you and Mr. Harrison, and I shall want you to criticize it severely. No one else shall see it until it is published.' How are you going to end it? Happily or unhappily?" I'm not sure. I'd like it to end unhappily, because that would be so much more romantic. But I understand editors have a prejudice against sad endings. I heard Professor Hamilton say once that nobody but a genius should try to write an unhappy ending. And, concluded Anne modestly, I am anything but a genius. Oh, I like happy endings best. You'd better let him marry her," said Diana, who, especially since her engagement to Fred, thought this was how every story should end. But you like to cry over stories. Oh, yes, in the middle of them. But I like everything to come out right at last." "'I must have one pathetic scene in it,' said Anne thoughtfully. "'I might let Robert Ray be injured in an accident and have a death scene.' "'No, you mustn't kill Bobby off,' declared Diana, laughing. "'He belongs to me, and I want him to live and flourish. Kill somebody else if you have to.' For the next fortnight Anne writhed or reveled, according to mood, in her literary pursuits. Now she would be jubilant over a brilliant idea, now despairing because some contrary character would not behave properly. Diana could not understand this. "'Make them do as you want them to,' she said. "'I can't,' mourned Anne. "'Avril is such an unmanageable heroine. She will do and say things I never meant her to. Then that spoils everything that went before, and I have to write it all over again.' Finally, however, the story was finished, and Anne read it to Diana in the seclusion of the porch gable. She had achieved her pathetic scene without sacrificing Robert Ray, and she kept a watchful eye on Diana as she read it. Diana rose to the occasion and cried properly, but when the end came she looked a little disappointed. "'Why did you kill Maurice Lennox?' she asked reproachfully. "'He was the villain,' protested Anne. "'He had to be punished.' "'I like him best of them all,' said unreasonable Diana. "'Well, he's dead, and he'll have to stay dead,' said Anne, rather resentfully. "'If I'd let him live, he'd have gone on persecuting Avril and Percival.' Yes, unless you had reformed him. That wouldn't have been romantic, and besides, it would have made the story too long. Well, anyway, it's a perfectly elegant story, Anne, and will make you famous of that, I'm sure. Have you got a title for it? Oh, I decided on the title long ago. I'll call it Avril's Atonement. Doesn't that sound nice and alliterative? Now, Diana, tell me candidly, do you see any faults in my story? Well, hesitated Diana. That part where Avril makes the cake doesn't seem to me quite romantic enough to match the rest. It's just what anybody might do. Heroines shouldn't do cooking, I think." "'Why, that is where the humor comes in, and it is one of the best parts of the whole story,' said Anne. And it may be stated that in this she was quite right." Diana prudently refrained from any further criticism. But Mr. Harrison was much harder to please. First he told her there was entirely too much description in the story. "'Cut out all those flowery passages,' he said unfeelingly. Anne had an uncomfortable conviction that Mr. Harrison was right, and she forced herself to expunge most of her beloved descriptions, though it took three rewritings before the story could be pruned down to please the fastidious Mr. Harrison. "'I've left out all the descriptions but the sunset,' she said at last. "'I simply couldn't let it go. It was the best of them all.' "'It hasn't anything to do with the story,' said Mr. Harrison. "'And you shouldn't have laid the scene among rich city people. What do you know of them? Why didn't you lay it right here in Avonlea?' changing the name, of course, or else Mrs. Rachel Lynde would probably think she was the heroine. 
"'Oh, that would never have done,' protested Anne. "'Avonlea is the dearest place in the world, but it isn't quite romantic enough for the scene of a story.' "'I dare say there's been many a romance in Avonlea, and many a tragedy, too,' said Mr. Harrison dryly. "'But your folks ain't like real folks anywhere. They talk too much and use too high-flown language. There's one place where that Dalrymple chap talks even on for two pages, and never lets the girl get a word in edgewise. If he'd done that in real life, she'd have pitched him.' "'I don't believe it,' said Anne flatly. In her secret soul she thought that the beautiful, poetical things said to Avril would win any girl's heart completely. Besides, it was gruesome to hear of Avril, the stately, queen-like Avril, pitching anyone. Avril declined her suitors. "'Anyhow,' resumed the merciless Mr. Harrison, "'I don't see why Maurice Lennox didn't get her. He was twice the man the other is. He did bad things, but he did them. Percival hadn't time for anything but mooning.' "'Mooning? That was even worse than pitching.' "'Maurice Lennox was the villain,' said Anne indignantly. "'I don't see why everyone likes him better than Percival.' Percival is too good. He's aggravating. Next time you write about a hero, put a little spice of human nature in him. Avril couldn't have married Maurice. He was bad. She'd have reformed him. You can reform a man. You can't reform a jellyfish, of course. Your story isn't bad. It's kind of interesting, I'll admit. But you're too young to write a story that would be worthwhile. Wait ten years." Anne made up her mind that the next time she wrote a story she wouldn't ask anybody to criticize it. It was too discouraging. She would not read the story to Gilbert, although she told him about it. "'If it is a success, you'll see it when it's published, Gilbert. But if it is a failure, nobody shall ever see it.' Marilla knew nothing about the venture. In imagination Anne saw herself reading a story out of a magazine to Marilla, entrapping her into praise of it—for in imagination all things are possible—and then triumphantly announcing herself the author. One day Anne took to the post-office a long, bulky envelope, addressed, with the delightful confidence of youth and inexperience, to the very biggest of the big magazines. Diana was as excited over it as Anne herself. "'How long do you suppose it will be before you hear from it?' she asked. "'It shouldn't be longer than a fortnight. Oh, how happy and proud I shall be if it is accepted!' "'Of course it will be accepted. And they will likely ask you to send them more. You may be as famous as Mrs. Morgan one day, Anne, and then how proud I'll be of knowing you," said Diana, who possessed, at least, the striking merit of an unselfish admiration of the gifts and graces of her friends. A week of delightful dreaming followed, and then came a bitter awakening. One evening Diana found Anne in the porch gable, with suspicious-looking eyes. On the table lay a long envelope and a crumpled manuscript. "'And your story hasn't come back!' cried Diana incredulously. "'Yes, it has,' said Anne shortly. "'Well, that editor must be crazy. What reason did he give?' "'No reason at all. There was just a printed slip saying that it wasn't found acceptable.' "'I never thought much of that magazine, anyway,' said Diana hotly. "'The stories in it are not half as interesting as those in The Canadian Woman, although it costs so much more. I suppose the editor is prejudiced against anyone who isn't a Yankee. Don't be discouraged, Anne. Remember how Mrs. Morgan's stories came back. Send yours to The Canadian Woman.' "'I believe I will,' said Anne, plucking up heart. "'And if it is published, I'll send that American editor a marked copy. But I'll cut the sunset out. I believe Mr. Harrison was right.' Out came the sunset. But in spite of this heroic mutilation, the editor of the Canadian Woman sent Avril's atonement back so promptly that the indignant Diana declared that it couldn't have been read at all, and vowed she was going to stop her subscription immediately. Anne took this second rejection with the calmness of despair. She locked the story away in the garret trunk where the old story club tales reposed, but first she yielded to Diana's entreaties and gave her a copy. 
This is the end of my literary ambitions," she said bitterly. She never mentioned the matter to Mr. Harrison, but one evening he asked her bluntly if her story had been accepted. No, the editor wouldn't take it, she answered briefly. Mr. Harrison looked sideways at the flushed, delicate profile. Well, I suppose you'll keep on writing them, he said encouragingly. No, I shall never try to write a story again, declared Anne, with the hopeless finality of nineteen, when a door is shut in its face. I wouldn't give up altogether, said Mr. Harrison reflectively. I'd write a story once in a while, but I wouldn't pester editors with it. I'd write of people and places like I knew, and I'd make my characters talk everyday English, and I'd let the sun rise and set in the usual quiet way without much fuss over the fact. If I had to have villains at all, I'd give them a chance, Anne. I'd give them a chance. There are some terrible bad men in the world, I suppose, but you'd have to go a long piece to find them, though Mrs. Lynde believes we're all bad. But most of us have got a little decency somewhere in us. Keep on writing, Anne." No. It was very foolish of me to attempt it. When I'm through Redmond I'll stick to teaching. I can teach. I can't write stories." "'It'll be time for you to be getting a husband when you're through Redmond,' said Mr. Harrison. I don't believe in putting marrying off too long, like I did." Anne got up and marched home. There were times when Mr. Harrison was really intolerable. Pitching, mooning, and getting a husband. Ow! End of chapter 12 all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter Thirteen: The Way of Transgressors. Davy and Dora were ready for Sunday school. They were going alone, which did not often happen, for Mrs. Lynde always attended Sunday school. But Mrs. Lynde had twisted her ankle and was lame, and so she was staying home this morning. The twins were also to represent the family at church, for Anne had gone away the evening before to spend Sunday with friends in Carmody, and Marilla had one of her headaches. Davy came downstairs slowly. Dora was waiting in the hall for him, having been made ready by Mrs. Lynde. Davy had attended to his own preparations. He had a cent in his pocket for the Sunday school collection, and a five-cent piece for the church collection. He carried his Bible in one hand and his Sunday school quarterly in the other. He knew his lesson and his golden text and his catechism question perfectly. Had he not studied them, perforce, in Mrs. Lynde's kitchen all last Sunday afternoon? Davy, therefore, should have been in a placid state of mind. As a matter of fact, despite text and catechism, he was inwardly as a ravening wolf. Mrs. Lynde limped out of her kitchen as he joined Dora. "'Are you clean?' she demanded severely. "'Yes. All of me that shows.' Davy answered with a defiant scowl. Mrs. Rachel sighed. She had her suspicions about Davy's neck and ears, but she knew that if she attempted to make a personal examination Davy would likely take to his heels, and she could not pursue him today. "'Well, be sure you behave yourselves,' she warned them. "'Don't walk in the dust. Don't stop in the porch to talk to the other children. Don't squirm or wriggle in your places. Don't forget the golden text. Don't lose your collection or forget to put it in. Don't whisper at prayer-time. And don't forget to pay attention to the sermon.' Davy deigned no response. He marched away down the lane, followed by the meek Dora, but his soul seethed within. Davy had suffered—or thought he had suffered—many things at the hands and tongue of Mrs. Rachel Lynde since she had come to Green Gables, for Mrs. Lynde could not live with anybody, whether they were nine or ninety, without trying to bring them up properly. And it was only the preceding afternoon that she had interfered to influence Marilla against allowing Davy to go fishing with the Timothy Cottons. Davy was still boiling over this. 
As soon as he was out of the lane, Davy stopped and twisted his countenance into such an unearthly and terrific contortion that Dora, although she knew his gifts in that respect, was honestly alarmed lest he should never in the world be able to get it straightened out again. "'Darn her!' exploded Davy. "'Oh, Davy, don't swear!' gasped Dora in dismay. "'Darn isn't swearing. Not real swearing. And I don't care if it is,' retorted Davy recklessly. "'Well, if you must say dreadful words, don't say them on Sunday,' pleaded Dora. Davy was as yet far from repentance, but in his secret soul he felt that perhaps he had gone a little too far. "'I'm going to invent a swear word of my own,' he declared. "'God will punish you if you do,' said Dora solemnly. "'Then I think God is a mean old scamp,' retorted Davy. "'Doesn't he know a fellow must have some way of expressing his feelings?' "'Davy!' said Dora. She expected that Davy would be struck down dead on the spot. But nothing happened. "'Anyway, I ain't going to stand any more of Mrs. Lynde's bossing,' spluttered Davy. "'Anne and Marilla may have the right to boss me, but she hasn't. I'm going to do every single thing she told me not to do. You watch me.' In grim, deliberate silence, while Dora watched him with the fascination of horror, Davy stepped off the green grass of the roadside, ankle-deep into the fine dust which four weeks of rainless weather had made on the road, and marched along in it, shuffling his feet viciously until he was enveloped in a hazy cloud. "'That's the beginning,' he announced triumphantly. "'And I'm going to stop in the porch and talk as long as there's anybody there to talk to. I'm going to squirm and wriggle and whisper, and I'm going to say I don't know the golden text, and I'm going to throw away both of my collections right now.' and Davy hurled cent and nickel over Mr. Barry's fence with fierce delight. "'Satan made you do that,' said Dora reproachfully. "'He didn't,' cried Davy indignantly. "'I just thought it out for myself. And I've thought of something else. I'm not going to go to Sunday school or church at all. I'm going up to play with the Cottons. They told me yesterday they weren't going to Sunday school today because their mother was away and there was nobody to make them. Come along, Dora. We'll have a great time.' "'I don't want to go,' protested Dora. "'You've got to,' said Davy. "'If you don't come, I'll tell Marilla that Frank Bell kissed you in school last Monday.' "'I couldn't help it. I didn't know he was going to,' cried Dora, blushing scarlet. "'Well, you didn't slap him or seem a bit cross,' retorted Davy. "'I'll tell her that, too, if you don't come. We'll take the shortcut up this field.' "'I'm afraid of those cows,' protested poor Dora, seeing a prospect of escape. "'The very idea of your being scared of those cows,' scoffed Davy. "'Why, they're both younger than you.' They're bigger," said Dora. They won't hurt you. Come along now. This is great. When I grow up, I ain't going to bother going to church at all. I believe I can get to heaven by myself. You'll go to the other place if you break the Sabbath day," said unhappy Dora, following him sorely against her will. But Davy was not scared. Yet. Hell was very far off, and the delights of a fishing expedition with the Cottons were very near. He wished Dora had more spunk. She kept looking back as if she were going to cry every minute, and that spoiled a fellow's fun. Hang girls, anyway. Davy did not say darn this time, even in thought. He was not sorry yet that he had said it once, but it might be as well not to tempt the unknown powers too far on one day. The small cottons were playing in their backyard, and hailed Davy's appearance with whoops of delight. Pete, Tommy, Adolphus, and Mirabel Cotton were all alone. Their mother and older sisters were away. Dora was thankful Mirabel was there, at least. She had been afraid she would be alone in a crowd of boys. Mirabel was almost as bad as a boy. She was so noisy and sunburned and reckless. But at least she wore dresses. "'We've come to go fishing,' announced Davy. "'Woo!' yelled the Cottons. They rushed away to dig worms at once, Mirabel leading the van with a tin can. 
Dora could have sat down and cried. Oh, if only that hateful Frank Bell had never kissed her! Then she could have defied Davy and gone to her beloved Sunday school. They dared not, of course, go fishing on the pond, where they would be seen by people going to church. They had to resort to the brook in the woods behind the cotton-house, but it was full of trout, and they had a glorious time that morning. At least, the cotton certainly had, and Davy seemed to have it. Not being entirely bereft of prudence, he had discarded boots and stockings and borrowed Tommy Cotton's overalls. Thus accoutred, bog and marsh and undergrowth had no terrors for him. Dora was frankly and manifestly miserable. She followed the others in their peregrinations from pool to pool, clasping her Bible and quarterly tightly, and thinking with bitterness of soul of her beloved class, where she would be sitting that very moment before a teacher she adored. Instead, here she was, roaming the woods with those half-wild cottons, trying to keep her boots clean and her pretty white dress free from rents and stains. Mirabel had offered the loan of an apron, but Dora had scornfully refused. The trout bit, as they always do on Sundays. In an hour the transgressors had all the fish they wanted, so they returned to the house, much to Dora's relief. She sat primly on a hen-coop in the yard while the others played an uproarious game of tag, and then they all climbed to the top of the pig-house roof and cut their initials on the saddle-board. The flat-roofed hen-house and a pile of straw beneath gave Davy another inspiration. They spent a splendid half-hour climbing on the roof and diving off into the straw with whoops and yells. But even unlawful pleasures must come to an end. When the rumble of wheels over the pond bridge told that people were going home from church, Davy knew they must go. He discarded Tommy's overalls, resumed his own rightful attire, and turned away from his string of trout with a sigh. No use to think of taking them home. "'Well, hadn't we a splendid time?' he demanded defiantly, as they went down the hill-field. "'I hadn't,' said Dora flatly. "'And I don't believe you had, really, either,' she added, with a flash of insight that was not to be expected of her. "'I had so,' cried Davy, but in the voice of one who doth protest too much. "'No wonder you hadn't, just sitting there like a—like a mule.' "'I ain't going to associate with the cottons,' said Dora loftily. "'The cottons are all right,' retorted Davy and they have far better times than we have. They do just as they please and say just what they like before everybody. I'm going to do that, too, after this." "'There are lots of things you wouldn't dare say before everybody,' averred Dora. "'No, there isn't. There is, too. Would you,' demanded Dora gravely, "'would you say Tomcat before the minister?' This was a staggerer. Davy was not prepared for such a concrete example of the freedom of speech. But one did not have to be consistent with Dora. "'Of course not,' he admitted sulkily. "'Tomcat isn't a holy word. I wouldn't mention such an animal before a minister at all.' "'But if you had to?' persisted Dora. "'I'd call it a Thomas Pussy,' said Davy. "'I think Gentleman Cat would be more polite,' reflected Dora. "'You thinking!' retorted Davy, with withering scorn. Davy was not feeling comfortable, though he would have died before he admitted it to Dora. Now that the exhilaration of truant delights had died away, his conscience was beginning to give him salutary twinges. After all, perhaps it would have been better to have gone to Sunday school and church. Mrs. Lynde might be bossy, but there was always a box of cookies in her kitchen cupboard, and she was not stingy. At this inconvenient moment Davy remembered that when he had torn his new school pants the week before, Mrs. Lynde had mended them beautifully, and never said a word to Marilla about them. But Davy's cup of iniquity was not yet full. He was to discover that one sin demands another to cover it. They had dinner with Mrs. Lynde that day, and the first thing she asked Davy was, "'Were all your class in Sunday school today?' "'Yes'm,' said Davy with a gulp. "'All were there, except one.' "'Did you say your golden text and catechism?' "'Yes'm.' "'Did you put your collection in?' "'Yes'm.' 
Was Mrs. Malcolm MacPherson in church? I don't know. This, at least, was the truth, thought wretched Davy. Was the ladies' aid announced for next week? Yes'm, quakingly. Was prayer meeting? I, I don't know. You should know. You should listen more attentively to the announcements. What was Mr. Harvey's text? Davy took a frantic gulp of water and swallowed it and the last protest of conscience together. He glibly recited an old golden text learned several weeks ago. Fortunately, Mrs. Lynde now stopped questioning him, but Davy did not enjoy his dinner. He could only eat one helping of pudding. "'What's the matter with you?' demanded justly astonished Mrs. Lynde. "'Are you sick?' "'No,' muttered Davy. "'You look pale. You'd better keep out of the sun this afternoon,' admonished Mrs. Lynde. "'Do you know how many lies you told Mrs. Lynde?' asked Dora reproachfully, as soon as they were alone after dinner. Davy, goaded to desperation, turned fiercely. "'I don't know and I don't care,' he said. "'You just shut up, Dora Keith.' Then poor Davy betook himself to a secluded retreat behind the woodpile to think over the way of transgressors. Green Gables was wrapped in darkness and silence when Anne reached home. She lost no time going to bed, for she was very tired and sleepy. There had been several Avonlea jollifications the preceding week involving rather late hours. Anne's head was hardly on her pillow before she was half asleep. But just then her door was softly opened, and a pleading voice said, "'Anne!' Anne sat up drowsily. "'Davy, is that you? What is the matter?' A white-clad figure flung itself across the floor and onto the bed. "'Anne!' sobbed Davy, getting his arms about her neck. "'I'm awful glad you're home. I couldn't go to sleep till I'd told somebody—' "'Told somebody what?' "'How miserable I am!' "'Why are you miserable, dear?' "'Cause I was so bad today, Anne. Oh, I was awful bad. Badder than I've ever been yet.' "'What did you do?' "'Oh, I'm afraid to tell you. You'll never like me again, Anne. I couldn't say my prayers tonight. I couldn't tell God what I'd done. I was shamed to have him know.' "'But he knew anyway, Davy.' That's what Dora said. I thought perhaps he mightn't have noticed just at the time. Anyway, I'd rather tell you first. What is it you did? Out it all came in a rush. I ran away from Sunday school and went fishing with the cottons, and I told ever so many whoppers to Mrs. Lynde, oh, most half a dozen, and—and and I, I said a swear word, Anne. Well, pretty near swear word, anyhow. And I called God names. There was silence. Davy didn't know what to make of it. Was Anne so shocked that she would never speak to him again? Anne? What are you going to do to me?" he whispered. Nothing, dear. You've been punished already, I think. No, I haven't. Nothing's been done to me. You've been very unhappy ever since you did wrong, haven't you? You bet, said Davy emphatically. That was your conscience punishing you, Davy. What's my conscience? I want to know. It's something in you, Davy, that always tells you when you are doing wrong and makes you unhappy if you persist in doing it. Haven't you noticed that? Yes, but I didn't know what it was. I wish I didn't have it. I'd have lots more fun. Where is my conscience, Anne? I want to know. Is it in my stomach?" "'No, it's in your soul,' answered Anne, thankful for the darkness, since gravity must be preserved in serious matters. "'I suppose I can't get clear of it, then,' said Davy with a sigh. "'Are you going to tell Marilla and Mrs. Lynde on me, Anne?' "'No, dear. I'm not going to tell anyone. You are sorry you were naughty, weren't you?' "'You bet.' "'And you'll never be bad like that again?' "'No, but—' added Davy cautiously. I might be bad some other way. You won't say naughty words, or run away on Sundays, or tell falsehoods to cover up your sins? Nope. It doesn't pay," said Davy. Well, Davy, just tell God you are sorry and ask Him to forgive you. Have you forgiven me, Anne? Yes, dear. Then, said Davy joyously, I don't care much whether God does or not. Davy! 
"'Oh, I'll ask him, I'll ask him,' said Davy quickly, scrambling off the bed, convinced by Anne's tone that he must have said something dreadful. "'I don't mind asking him, Anne. Please, God, I'm awfully sorry I behaved bad today, and I'll try to be good on Sundays always, and please forgive me. There now, Anne. Well, now, run off to bed like a good boy.' "'All right. Say, I don't feel miserable any more. I feel fine. Good night.' "'Good night.' Anne slipped down on her pillows with a sigh of relief. Oh, how sleepy she was! In another second— Anne! Davy was back again by her bed. Anne dragged her eyes open. What is it now, dear? she asked, trying to keep a note of impatience out of her voice. Anne, have you ever noticed how Mr. Harrison spits? Do you suppose if I practice hard I can learn to spit just like him? Anne sat up. Davy Keith, she said. Go straight to your bed and don't let me catch you out of it again tonight. Go! Now! Davy went, and stood not upon the order of his going. End of chapter 13 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 14 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island Chapter 14 The Summons Anne was sitting with Ruby Gillis in the Gillis's garden after the day had crept lingeringly through it and was gone. It had been a warm, smoky summer afternoon. The world was in a splendor of outflowering. The idle valleys were full of hazes. The woodways were pranked with shadows and the fields with the purple of the asters. Anne had given up a moonlight drive to the White Sands Beach that she might spend the evening with Ruby. She had so spent many evenings that summer, although she often wondered what good it did anyone and sometimes went home deciding that she could not go again. Ruby grew paler as the summer waned. The White Sands School was given up. Her father thought it better that she shouldn't teach till New Year's. And the fancy work she loved oftener and oftener fell from hands grown too weary for it. But she was always gay, always hopeful, always chattering and whispering of her bows and their rivalries and despairs. It was this that made Anne's visits hard for her. What had once been silly or amusing was gruesome now. It was death peering through a willful mask of life. Yet Ruby seemed to cling to her, and never let her go until she had promised to come again soon. Mrs. Lynde grumbled about Anne's frequent visits, and declared she would catch consumption. Even Marilla was dubious. "'Every time you go to see Ruby you come home looking tired out,' she said. "'It's so very sad and dreadful,' said Anne in a low tone. "'Ruby doesn't seem to realize her condition in the least. And yet I somehow feel she needs help—craves it and I want to give it to her and can't. All the time I'm with her I feel as if I were watching her struggle with an invisible foe, trying to push it back with such feeble resistance as she has. That is why I come home tired." But tonight Anne did not feel this so keenly. Ruby was strangely quiet. She said not a word about parties and drives and dresses and fellows. She lay in the hammock, with her untouched work beside her, and a white shawl wrapped about her thin shoulders. Her long yellow braids of hair, how Anne had envied those beautiful braids in old school days, lay on either side of her. She had taken the pins out. They made her headache, she said. The hectic flush was gone for the time, leaving her pale and childlike. The moon rose in the silvery sky, empearling the clouds around her. Below, the pond shimmered in its hazy radiance. Just beyond the Gillis homestead was the church, with the old graveyard beside it. The moonlight shone on the white stones, bringing them out in clear-cut relief against the dark trees behind. "'How strange the graveyard looks by moonlight,' said Ruby suddenly. "'How ghostly!' she shuddered. 
Anne, it won't be long now before I'll be lying over there. You and Diana and all the rest will be going about, full of life. And I'll be there, in the old graveyard. Dead." The surprise of it bewildered Anne. For a few moments she could not speak. "'You know it's so, don't you?' said Ruby insistently. "'Yes, I know,' answered Anne in a low tone. "'Dear Ruby, I know.' "'Everybody knows it,' said Ruby bitterly. "'I know it. I've known it all summer, though I wouldn't give in. And, oh, Anne—' She reached out and caught Anne's hand, pleadingly, impulsively. "'I don't want to die. I'm afraid to die.' "'Why should you be afraid, Ruby?' asked Anne quietly. "'Because—because—oh, I'm not afraid but that I'll go to heaven, Anne. I'm a church member. But it'll all be so different. I think and think, and I get so frightened and—and and homesick. Heaven must be very beautiful, of course. The Bible says so. But, Anne, it won't be what I've been used to.' Through Anne's mind drifted an intrusive recollection of a funny story she had heard Philippa Gordon tell the story of some old man who had said very much the same thing about the world to come. It had sounded funny, then. She remembered how she and Priscilla had laughed over it. But it did not seem in the least humorous now, coming from Ruby's pale, trembling lips. It was sad, tragic, and true. Heaven could not be what Ruby had been used to. There had been nothing in her gay, frivolous life, her shallow ideals and aspirations, to fit her for that great change, or make the life to come seem to her anything but alien and unreal and undesirable. Anne wondered helplessly what she could say that would help her. Could she say anything? "'I think, Ruby,' she began hesitatingly, for it was difficult for Anne to speak to any one of the deepest thoughts of her heart, or the new ideas that had vaguely begun to shape themselves in her mind, concerning the great mysteries of life here and hereafter, superseding her old childish conceptions and it was hardest of all to speak of them to such as Ruby Gillis. "'I think, perhaps, we have very mistaken ideas about heaven, what it is and what it holds for us. I don't think it can be so very different from life here as most people seem to think. I believe we'll just go on living, a good deal as we live here, and be ourselves just the same, only it will be easier to be good and to follow the highest. All the hindrances and perplexities will be taken away, and we shall see clearly. Don't be afraid, Ruby." "'I can't help it,' said Ruby pitifully. "'Even if what you say about heaven is true—and you can't be sure—it may be only that imagination of yours. It won't be just the same. It can't be. I want to go on living here. I'm so young, Anne. I haven't had my life. I've fought so hard to live, and it isn't any use. I have to die, and leave everything I care for.' Anne sat in a pain that was almost intolerable. She could not tell comforting falsehoods. And all that Ruby said was so horribly true. She was leaving everything she cared for. She had laid up her treasures on earth only. She had lived solely for the little things of life—the things that pass, forgetting the great things that go onward into eternity, bridging the gulf between the two lives, and making of death a mere passing from one dwelling to the other, from twilight to unclouded day. God would take care of her there, Anne believed. She would learn. But now it was no wonder her soul clung, in blind helplessness, to the only thing she knew and loved. Ruby raised herself on her arm and lifted her bright, beautiful blue eyes to the moonlit skies. "'I want to live,' she said in a trembling voice. "'I want to live like other girls. I—I I want to be married, Anne, and—and and have little children. You know I always loved babies, Anne. I couldn't say this to anyone but you. I know you understand. And then poor Herb. He—he he loves me, and I love him, Anne. The others meant nothing to me, but he does. 
And if I could live, I would be his wife and be so happy. Oh, Anne, it's hard." Ruby sank back on her pillows and sobbed convulsively. Anne pressed her hand in an agony of sympathy—silent sympathy—which perhaps helped Ruby more than broken, imperfect words could have done, for presently she grew calmer and her sobs ceased. "'I'm glad I've told you this, Anne,' she whispered. "'It has helped me just to say it all out. I've wanted to all summer, every time you came. I wanted to talk it over with you, but I couldn't. It seemed as if it would make death so sure, if I said I was going to die, or if anyone else said it or hinted it. I couldn't say it or even think it. In the daytime, when people were around me and everything was cheerful, it wasn't so hard to keep from thinking of it. But in the night, when I couldn't sleep, it was so dreadful, Anne. I couldn't get away from it then. Death just came and stared me in the face until I got so frightened I could have screamed. But you won't be frightened any more, Ruby, will you? You'll be brave, and believe that all is going to be well with you? I'll try. I'll think over what you have said and try to believe it. And you'll come up as often as you can, won't you, Anne?" Yes, dear. It—it it, it won't be very long now, Anne. I feel sure of that. And I'd rather have you than anyone else. I always liked you best of all the girls I went to school with. You were never jealous or mean like some of them were. Poor M. White was up to see me yesterday. You remember M. and I were such chums for three years when we went to school, and then we quarrelled the time of the school concert. We've never spoken to each other since. Wasn't it silly? Anything like that seems silly now. But M. and I made up the old quarrel yesterday. She said she'd have spoken years ago, only she thought I wouldn't. And I never spoke to her because I was sure she wouldn't speak to me. Isn't it strange how people misunderstand each other, Anne?" "'Most of the trouble in life comes from misunderstanding, I think,' said Anne. "'I must go now, Ruby. It's getting late, and you shouldn't be out in the damp. You'll come up soon again?' "'Yes, very soon. And if there's anything I can do to help you, I'll be so glad.' "'I know. You have helped me already. Nothing seems quite so dreadful now. Good night, Anne. Good night, dear.' Anne walked home very slowly in the moonlight. The evening had changed something for her. Life held a different meaning, a deeper purpose. On the surface it would go on just the same, but the deeps had been stirred. It must not be with her as with poor Butterfly Ruby. When she came to the end of one life it must not be to face the next with the shrinking terror of something wholly different, something for which accustomed thought and ideal and aspiration had unfitted her. The little things of life, sweet and excellent in their place, must not be the things lived for. The highest must be sought and followed. The life of heaven must be begun here on earth." That good night in the garden was for all time. Anne never saw Ruby in life again. The next night the Avis gave a farewell party to Jane Andrews before her departure for the West, and while light feet danced and bright eyes laughed and merry tongues chattered, there came a summons to a soul in Avonlea that might not be disregarded or evaded. The next morning the word went from house to house that Ruby Gillis was dead. She had died in her sleep, painlessly and calmly, and on her face was a smile. As if, after all, death had come as a kindly friend to lead her over the threshold, instead of the grisly phantom she had dreaded. Mrs. Rachel Lynde said emphatically after the funeral that Ruby Gillis was the handsomest corpse she ever laid eyes on. Her loveliness, as she lay, white-clad among the delicate flowers that Anne had placed about her, was remembered and talked of for years in Avonlea. Ruby had always been beautiful but her beauty had been of the earth—earthy. It had had a certain insolent quality in it, as if it flaunted itself in the beholder's eye. Spirit had never shone through it, intellect had never refined it. 
But death had touched it and consecrated it, bringing out delicate modellings and purity of outline never seen before, doing what life and love and great sorrow and deep womanhood joys might have done for Ruby. Anne, looking down through a mist of tears at her old playfellow, thought she saw the face God had meant Ruby to have, and remembered it so always. Mrs. Gillis called Anne aside into a vacant room before the funeral procession left the house, and gave her a small packet. "'I want you to have this,' she sobbed. "'Ruby would have liked you to have it. It's the embroidered centerpiece she was working at. It isn't quite finished. The needle is sticking in it, just where her poor little fingers put it the last time she laid it down, the afternoon before she died.' "'There's always a piece of unfinished work left,' said Mrs. Lynde, with tears in her eyes. "'But I suppose there's always someone to finish it.' "'How difficult it is to realize that one we have always known can really be dead,' said Anne, as she and Diana walked home. "'Ruby is the first of our schoolmates to go. One by one, sooner or later, all the rest of us must follow.' "'Yes, I suppose so,' said Diana uncomfortably. She did not want to talk of that. She would have preferred to have discussed the details of the funeral the splendid white velvet casket Mr. Gillis had insisted on having for Ruby. "'The Gillises must always make a splurge, even at funerals,' quoth Mrs. Rachel Lynde. Herb Spencer's sad face, the uncontrolled, hysteric grief of one of Ruby's sisters. But Anne would not talk of these things. She seemed wrapped in a reverie in which Diana felt lonesomely that she had neither lot nor part. "'Ruby Gillis was a great girl to laugh,' said Davy suddenly. "'Will she laugh as much in heaven as she did in Avonlea, Anne? I want to know.' "'Yes, I think she will,' said Anne. "'Oh, Anne!' protested Diana, with a rather shocked smile. "'Well, why not, Diana?' asked Anne seriously. "'Do you think we'll never laugh in heaven?' "'Oh, I—I I don't know,' floundered Diana. "'It doesn't seem just right, somehow. You know, it's rather dreadful to laugh in church.' "'But heaven won't be like church all the time,' said Anne. "'I hope it ain't,' said Davy emphatically. "'If it is, I don't want to go. Church is awful dull. Anyway, I don't mean to go for ever so long. I mean to live to be a hundred years old, like Mr. Thomas Blewett of White Sands. He says he's lived so long cause he always smoked tobacco and it killed all the germs. Can I smoke tobacco pretty soon, Anne?" No, Davy. I hope you'll never use tobacco," said Anne absently. What do you feel like if the germs kill me, then? demanded Davy. End of chapter 14 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery, read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island, Chapter Fifteen, A Dream Turned Upside Down. Just one more week and we go back to Redmond," said Anne. She was happy at the thought of returning to work, classes, and Redmond friends. Pleasing visions were also being woven around Patty's place. There was a warm, pleasant sense of home in the thought of it, even though she had never lived there. But the summer had been a very happy one, too. A time of glad living with summer suns and skies, a time of keen delight in wholesome things, a time of renewing and deepening of old friendships, a time in which she had learned to live more nobly, to work more patiently, to play more heartily. All life lessons are not learned at college, she thought. Life teaches them everywhere. But alas, the final week of that pleasant vacation was spoiled for Anne by one of those impish happenings which are like a dream turned upside down. "'Been writing any more stories lately?' inquired Mr. Harrison genially one evening, when Anne was taking tea with him and Mrs. Harrison. "'No,' answered Anne, rather crisply. 
Well, no offense meant. Mrs. Hiram Sloane told me the other day that a big envelope addressed to the Rawlings Reliable Baking Powder Company of Montreal had been dropped into the post office box a month ago, and she suspicioned that somebody was trying for the prize they'd offered for the best story that introduced the name of their baking powder. She said it wasn't addressed in your writing, but I thought maybe it was you. Indeed, no. I saw the prize offer, but I'd never dream of competing for it. I think it would be perfectly disgraceful to write a story to advertise a baking powder. It would be almost as bad as Judson Parker's patent medicine fence." So spake Anne loftily, little dreaming of the valley of humiliation awaiting her. That very day Diana popped into the porch gable, bright-eyed and rosy-cheeked, carrying a letter. "'Oh, Anne, here's a letter for you. I was at the office, so I thought I'd bring it along. Do open it quick. If it is what I believe it is, I shall be just wild with delight." Anne, puzzled, opened the letter and glanced over the typewritten contents. Miss Anne Shirley, Green Gables, Avonlea, P.E. Island. Dear Madam, We have much pleasure in informing you that your charming story, Averil's Atonement, has won the prize of twenty-five dollars offered in our recent competition. We enclose the check herewith. We are arranging for the publication of the story in several prominent Canadian newspapers, and we also intend to have it printed in pamphlet form for distribution among our patrons. Thanking you for the interest you have shown in our enterprise, we remain, yours very truly, the Rawlings Reliable Baking Powder Company." "'I don't understand,' said Anne blankly. Diana clapped her hands. "'Oh, I knew it would win the prize! I was sure of it! I sent your story into the competition, Anne!' "'Diana Barry!' "'Yes, I did,' said Diana, gleefully perching herself on the bed. "'When I saw the offer I thought of your story in a minute, and at first I thought I'd ask you to send it in. But then I was afraid you wouldn't. You had so little faith left in it. So I just decided I'd send the copy you gave me and say nothing about it. Then if it didn't win the prize you'd never know and you wouldn't feel badly over it, because the stories that failed were not to be returned. And if it did, you'd have such a delightful surprise.' Diana was not the most discerning of mortals but just at this moment it struck her that Anne was not looking exactly overjoyed. The surprise was there, beyond doubt. But where was the delight? "'Why, Anne, you don't seem a bit pleased!' she exclaimed. Anne instantly manufactured a smile and put it on. "'Of course I couldn't be anything but pleased over your unselfish wish to give me pleasure,' she said slowly. "'But you know, I'm so amazed. I can't realize it, and I don't understand. There, there wasn't a word in my story about—' about Anne choked a little over the word baking powder oh i put that in said diana reassured it was as easy as wink and of course my experience in our old story club helped me you know the scene where avril makes the cake well i just stated that she used rawlings reliable in it and that was why it turned out so well and then in the last paragraph where percival clasps avril in his arms and says sweetheart the beautiful coming years will bring us the fulfillment of our home of dreams i added in which we will never use any baking powder except rawlings reliable oh gasped poor anne as if someone had dashed cold water on her and you've won the twenty-five dollars, continued Diana jubilantly. Why, I heard Priscilla say once that the Canadian woman only pays five dollars for a story. Anne held out the hateful pink slip in shaking fingers. I can't take it. It's yours by right, Diana. You sent the story in and made the alterations. I—I I would certainly never have sent it, so you must take the check. I'd like to see myself, said Diana scornfully. Why, what I did wasn't any trouble. The honor of being a friend of the prize-winner is enough for me. Well, I must go. I should have gone straight home from the post-office, for we have company, but I simply had to come and hear the news. I'm so glad for your sake, Anne." Anne suddenly bent forward, put her arms about Diana, and kissed her cheek. "'I think you are the sweetest and truest friend in the world, Diana,' she said, with a little tremble in her voice, "'and I assure you I appreciate the motive of what you've done.' 
Diana, pleased and embarrassed, got herself away, and poor Anne, after flinging the innocent check into her bureau drawer as if it were blood-money, cast herself on her bed and wept tears of shame and outraged sensibility. Oh, she could never live this down! Never! Gilbert arrived at dusk, brimming over with congratulations, for he had called at Orchard Slope and heard the news. But his congratulations died on his lips at the sight of Anne's face. "'Why, Anne, what is the matter? I expected to find you radiant over winning Rawlings' reliable prize. Good for you!' "'Oh, Gilbert, not you!' implored Anne in an A2 brute tone. "'I thought you would understand. Can't you see how awful it is?' "'I must confess I can't. What is wrong?' "'Everything!' moaned Anne. "'I feel as if I were disgraced for ever. What do you think a mother would feel like if she found her child tattooed over with a baking-powder advertisement? I feel just the same. I loved my poor little story, and I wrote it out of the best that was in me. And it is sacrilege to have it degraded to the level of a baking-powder advertisement. Don't you remember what Professor Hamilton used to tell us in the literature class at Queen's? He said we were never to write a word for a low or unworthy motive, but always to cling to the very highest ideals. What will he think when he hears I've written a story to advertise Rawlings reliable? And, oh, when it gets out at Redmond! Think how I'll be teased and laughed at!" "'That you won't,' said Gilbert, wondering uneasily if it were that confounded Junior's opinion in particular over which Anne was worried. "'The Reds will think just as I thought—that you, being like nine out of ten of us, not overburdened with worldly wealth, had taken this way of earning an honest penny to help yourself through the year. I don't see that there's anything low or unworthy about that, or anything ridiculous, either. One would rather write masterpieces of literature, no doubt, but meanwhile board and tuition fees have to be paid." This common-sense, matter-of-fact view of the case cheered Anne a little. At least it removed her dread of being laughed at, though the deeper hurt of an outraged ideal remained. End of chapter 15 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island, Chapter Sixteen, Adjusted Relationships. It's the homiest spot I ever saw. It's homier than home, avowed Philippa Gordon, looking about her with delighted eyes. They were all assembled at twilight in the big living room at Patty's place. Anne and Priscilla, Phil and Stella, Aunt Jamesina, Rusty, Joseph, the Sarah Cat, and Gog and Magog. The firelight shadows were dancing over the walls, the cats were purring, and a huge bowl of hothouse chrysanthemums, sent to Phil by one of the victims, shone through the golden gloom like creamy moons. It was three weeks since they had considered themselves settled, and already all believed the experiment would be a success. The first fortnight after their return had been a pleasantly exciting one. They had been busy setting up their household goods, organizing their little establishment, and adjusting different opinions. Anne was not over-sorry to leave Avonlea when the time came to return to college. The last few days of her vacation had not been pleasant. Her prize story had been published in the island papers, and Mr. William Blair had, upon the counter of his store, a huge pile of pink, green, and yellow pamphlets containing it, one of which he gave to every customer. He sent a complimentary bundle to Anne, who promptly dropped them all in the kitchen stove. Her humiliation was the consequence of her own ideals only, for Avonlea folks thought it quite splendid that she should have won the prize. Her many friends regarded her with honest admiration, her few foes with scornful envy. Josie Pye said she believed Anne Shirley had just copied the story. She was sure she remembered reading it in a paper years before. 
The Sloanes, who had found out or guessed that Charlie had been turned down, said they didn't think it was much to be proud of. Almost anyone could have done it if she tried. Aunt Atossa told Anne she was very sorry to hear she had taken to writing novels. Nobody born and bred in Avonlea would do it. That was what came of adopting orphans from goodness knew where, with goodness knew what kind of parents. Even Mrs. Rachel Lynde was darkly dubious about the propriety of writing fiction, though she was almost reconciled to it by that twenty-five-dollar check. "'It is perfectly amazing the price they pay for such lies, that's what,' she said half-proudly, half-severely. All things considered, it was a relief when going-away time came. And it was very jolly to be back at Redmond, a wise, experienced sof, with hosts of friends to greet on the merry opening day. Pris and Stella and Gilbert were there, Charlie Sloane looking more important than ever a sophomore looked before, Phil with the Alec and Alonzo questions still unsettled, and Moody Spurgeon MacPherson. Moody Spurgeon had been teaching school ever since leaving Queen's, but his mother had concluded it was high time he gave it up and turned his attention to learning how to be a minister. Poor Moody Spurgeon fell on hard luck at the very beginning of his college career. Half a dozen ruthless sophs, who were among his fellow boarders, swooped down on him one night and shaved half of his head. In this guise the luckless Moody Spurgeon had to go about until his hair grew again. He told Anne bitterly that there were times when he had his doubts as to whether he was really called to be a minister. Aunt Jamesina did not come until the girls had Patty's place ready for her. Miss Patty had sent the key to Anne, with a letter in which she said Gog and Magog were packed in a box under the spare-room bed, but might be taken out when wanted. In a postscript she added that she hoped the girls would be careful about putting up pictures. The living-room had been newly papered five years before, and she and Miss Maria did not want any more holes made in that new paper than was absolutely necessary. For the rest she trusted everything to Anne. How those girls enjoy putting their nest in order! As Phil said, it was almost as good as getting married. You had the fun of home-making without the bother of a husband. All brought something with them to adorn or make comfortable the little house. Pris and Phil and Stella had knick-knacks and pictures galore, which latter they proceeded to hang according to taste in reckless disregard of Miss Patty's new paper. "'We'll putty the holes up when we leave, dear. She'll never know,' they said to protesting Anne. Diana had given Anne a pine-needle cushion, and Miss Ada had given both her and Priscilla a fearfully and wonderfully embroidered one. Marilla had sent a big box of preserves, and darkly hinted at a hamper for Thanksgiving, and Mrs. Lynde gave Anne a patchwork quilt and loaned her five more. "'You take them,' she said authoritatively. "'They might as well be in use as packed away in that trunk in the garret for moths to gnaw.' No moths would ever have ventured near those quilts, for they reeked of mothballs to such an extent that they had to be hung in the orchard of Patty's place a full fortnight before they could be endured indoors. Verily, aristocratic Spofford Avenue had rarely beheld such a display. The gruff old millionaire who lived next door came over and wanted to buy the gorgeous red-and-yellow tulip-pattern one which Mrs. Rachel had given Anne. He said his mother used to make quilts like that, and by Jove he wanted one to remind him of her. Anne would not sell it, much to his disappointment, but she wrote all about it to Mrs. Lynde. That highly gratified lady sent word back that she had one just like it to spare, so the tobacco king got his quilt after all, and insisted on having it spread on his bed, to the disgust of his fashionable wife. Mrs. Lynde's quilt served a very useful purpose that winter. Patty's place, for all its many virtues, had its faults also. It was really a rather cold house, and when the frosty nights came the girls were very glad to snuggle down under Mrs. Lynde's quilts, and hoped that the loan of them might be accounted unto her for righteousness. Anne had the blue room she had coveted at sight. Priscilla and Stella had the large one. 
Phil was blissfully content with the little one over the kitchen, and Aunt Jamesina was to have the downstairs one off the living room. Rusty at first slept on the doorstep. Anne, walking home from Redmond a few days after her return, became aware that people she met surveyed her with a covert, indulgent smile. Anne wondered uneasily what was the matter with her. Was her hat crooked? Was her belt loose? Craning her head to investigate, Anne, for the first time, saw Rusty. Trotting along beside her, close to her heels, was quite the most forlorn specimen of the cat tribe she had ever beheld. The animal was well past kittenhood—lank, thin, disreputable-looking. Pieces of both ears were lacking, one eye was temporarily out of repair, and one jowl ludicrously swollen. As for color, if a once black cat had been well and thoroughly singed, the result would have resembled the hue of this waif's thin, draggled, unsightly fur. Anne shooed, but the cat would not shoo. As long as she stood, he sat back on his haunches and gazed at her reproachfully out of his one good eye. When she resumed her walk, he followed. Anne resigned herself to his company until she reached the gate of Patty's place, which she coldly shut in his face, fondly supposing she had seen the last of him. But when fifteen minutes later Phil opened the door, there sat the rusty brown cat on the step. More, he promptly darted in and sprang upon Anne's lap with a half-pleading, half-triumphant meow. "'Anne,' said Stella severely, "'do you own that animal?' "'No, I do not,' protested disgusted Anne. The creature followed me home from somewhere. I couldn't get rid of him. Ugh! Get down! I like decent cats reasonably well, but I don't like beasties of your complexion." Pussy, however, refused to get down. He coolly curled up in Anne's lap and began to purr. "'He has evidently adopted you,' laughed Priscilla. "'I won't be adopted,' said Anne stubbornly. The poor creature is starving,' said Phil pityingly. "'Why, his bones are almost coming through his skin.' Well. I'll give him a square meal, and then he must return to whence he came," said Anne resolutely. The cat was fed and put out. In the morning he was still on the doorstep. On the doorstep he continued to sit, bolting in whenever the door was opened. No coolness of welcome had the least effect on him. Of nobody save Anne did he take the least notice. Out of compassion the girls fed him. But when a week had passed, they decided that something must be done. The cat's appearance had improved. His eye and cheek had resumed their normal appearance. He was not quite so thin, and he had been seen washing his face. "'But for all that we can't keep him,' said Stella. "'Aunt Jimsy is coming next week, and she will bring the Sarah-cat with her. We can't keep two cats. And if we did, this rusty coat would fight all the time with the Sarah-cat. He's a fighter by nature. He had a pitched battle last evening with the Tobacco King's cat and routed him, horse, foot, and artillery.' "'We must get rid of him,' agreed Anne, looking darkly at the subject of their discussion, who was purring on the hearth-rug with an air of lamb-like meekness. "'But the question is, how? How can four unprotected females get rid of a cat who won't be got rid of?' "'We must chloroform him,' said Phil briskly. "'That is the most humane way.' "'Who of us knows anything about chloroforming a cat?' demanded Anne gloomily. "'I do, honey. It's one of my few—sadly few—useful accomplishments.' I've disposed of several at home. You take the cat in the morning and give him a good breakfast. Then you take an old burlap bag—there's one on the back porch—put the cat in it and turn him over a wooden box. Then take a two-ounce bottle of chloroform, uncork it, and slip it under the edge of the box. Put a heavy weight on top of the box and leave it till evening. The cat will be dead, curled up peacefully as if he were asleep. No pain, no struggle." "'It sounds easy,' said Anne dubiously. "'It is easy. Just leave it to me. I'll see to it," said Phil reassuringly. Accordingly the chloroform was procured, and the next morning Rusty was lured to his doom. 
He ate his breakfast, licked his chops, and climbed into Anne's lap. Anne's heart misgave her. This poor creature loved her, trusted her. How could she be a party to this destruction? Here, take him, she said hastily to Phil. I feel like a murderess. He won't suffer, you know, comforted Phil. But Anne had fled. The fatal deed was done in the back porch. Nobody went near it that day. But at dusk, Phil declared that Rusty must be buried. Pris and Stella must dig his grave in the orchard, declared Phil, and Anne must come with me to lift the box off. That's the part I always hate. The two conspirators tiptoed reluctantly to the back porch. Phil gingerly lifted the stone she had put on the box. Suddenly, faint but distinct, sounded an unmistakable meow under the box. He—he he isn't dead, gasped Anne, sitting blankly down on the kitchen doorstep. He must be, said Phil incredulously. Another tiny meow proved that he wasn't. The two girls stared at each other. "'What will we do?' questioned Anne. "'Why in the world don't you come?' demanded Stella, appearing in the doorway. "'We've got the grave ready.' "'What silent still and silent all?' she quoted teasingly. "'Oh, no, the voices of the dead sound like the distant torrents fall,' promptly counter-quoted Anne, pointing solemnly to the box. A burst of laughter broke the tension. "'We must leave him here till morning,' said Phil, replacing the stone. He hasn't meowed for five minutes. Perhaps the meows we heard were his dying groan. Or perhaps we merely imagined them under the strain of our guilty consciences. But when the box was lifted in the morning, Rusty bounded at one gay leap to Anne's shoulder, where he began to lick her face affectionately. Never was there a cat more decidedly alive. "'There's a knot-hole in the box,' groaned Phil. "'I never saw it. That's why he didn't die. Now we've got to do it all over again.' "'No, we haven't,' declared Anne suddenly. Rusty isn't going to be killed again. He's my cat, and you've just got to make the best of it." "'Oh, well, if you'll settle with Aunt Jimsy and the Sarah-cat,' said Stella, with the air of one washing her hands of the whole affair. From that time Rusty was one of the family. He slept a nights on the scrubbing cushion in the back porch, and lived on the fat of the land. By the time Aunt Jamesina came he was plump and glossy and tolerably respectable. But, like Kipling's cat, he walked by himself. His paw was against every cat, and every cat's paw against him. One by one he vanquished the aristocratic felines of Spofford Avenue. As for human beings, he loved Anne and Anne alone. Nobody else even dared stroke him. An angry spit and something that sounded much like very improper language greeted any one who did. "'The airs that cat puts on are perfectly intolerable,' declared Stella. "'Him was a nice old pussums, him was,' vowed Anne, cuddling her pet defiantly. "'Well, I don't know how he and the Sarah-cat will ever make out to live together,' said Stella pessimistically. "'Cat-fights in the orchard o' nights are bad enough, but cat-fights here in the living-room are unthinkable.' In due time Aunt Jamesina arrived. Anne and Priscilla and Phil had awaited her advent rather dubiously. But when Aunt Jamesina was enthroned in the rocking-chair before the open fire, they figuratively bowed down and worshipped her. Aunt Jamesina was a tiny old woman, with a little, softly triangular face, and large, soft blue eyes that were alight with unquenchable youth, and as full of hopes as a girl's. She had pink cheeks and snow-white hair which she wore in quaint little puffs over her ears. "'It's a very old-fashioned way,' she said, knitting industriously at something as dainty and pink as a sunset cloud. "'But I am old-fashioned. My clothes are, and it stands to reason my opinions are, too. I don't say they're any the better of that, mind you. In fact, I dare say they're a good deal the worse. But they've worn nice and easy. New shoes are smarter than old ones, but the old ones are more comfortable. I'm old enough to indulge myself in the matter of shoes and opinions. I mean to take it real easy here. I know you expect me to look after you and keep you proper, but I'm not going to do it. 
You're old enough to know how to behave if you're ever going to be. So as far as I'm concerned, concluded Aunt Jamesina with a twinkle in her young eyes, you can all go to destruction in your own way. Oh, will somebody separate those cats? pleaded Stella shudderingly. Aunt Jamesina had brought with her not only the Sarah cat, but Joseph. Joseph, she explained, had belonged to a dear friend of hers who had gone to live in Vancouver. She couldn't take Joseph with her, so she begged me to take him. I really couldn't refuse. He's a beautiful cat. That is, his disposition is beautiful. She called him Joseph because his coat is of many colors. It certainly was. Joseph, as the disgusted Stella said, looked like a walking rag-bag. It was impossible to say what his ground color was. His legs were white with black spots on them. His back was gray with a huge patch of yellow on one side and a black patch on the other. His tail was yellow with a gray tip. One ear was black and one yellow. A black patch over one eye gave him a fearfully rakish look. In reality he was meek and inoffensive, of a social disposition. In one respect, if in no other, Joseph was like a lily of the field. He toiled not, neither did he spin nor catch mice. Yet Solomon in all his glory slept not on softer cushions, or feasted more fully on fat things. Joseph and the Sarah-cat arrived by express in separate boxes. After they had been released and fed, Joseph selected the cushion and corner which appealed to him, and the Sarah-cat gravely sat herself down before the fire and proceeded to wash her face. She was a large, sleek, grey-and-white cat, with an enormous dignity which was not at all impaired by any consciousness of her plebeian origin. She had been given to Aunt Jamesina by her washerwoman. Her name was Sarah, so my husband always called Puss the Sarah-cat, explained Aunt Jamesina. She is eight years old and a remarkable mouser. Don't worry, Stella. The Sarah-cat never fights, and Joseph rarely. They'll have to fight here in self-defense, said Stella. At this juncture Rusty arrived on the scene. He bounded joyously halfway across the room before he saw the intruders. Then he stopped short. His tail expanded until it was as big as three tails. The fur on his back rose up in a defiant arch. Rusty lowered his head, uttered a fearful shriek of hatred and defiance, and launched himself at the Sarah-cat. The stately animal had stopped washing her face and was looking at him curiously. She met his onslaught with one contemptuous sweep of her capable paw. Rusty went rolling helplessly over on the rug. He picked himself up dazedly. What sort of a cat was this who had boxed his ears? He looked dubiously at the Sarah-cat. Would he, or would he not? The Sarah-cat deliberately turned her back on him and resumed her toilet operations. Rusty decided that he would not. He never did. From that time on the Sarah-cat ruled the roost. Rusty never again interfered with her. But Joseph rashly sat up and yawned. Rusty, burning to avenge his disgrace, swooped down on him. Joseph, pacific by nature, could fight upon occasion, and fight well. The result was a series of drawn battles. Every day Rusty and Joseph fought at sight. Anne took Rusty's part and detested Joseph. Stella was in despair, but Aunt Jamesina only laughed. "'Let them fight it out,' she said tolerantly. "'They'll make friends after a bit.' Joseph needs some exercise. He was getting too fat. And Rusty has to learn he isn't the only cat in the world." Eventually Joseph and Rusty accepted the situation, and from sworn enemies became sworn friends. They slept on the same cushion with their paws about each other, and gravely washed each other's faces. "'We've all got used to each other,' said Phil. "'And I've learned how to wash dishes and sweep a floor.' "'But you needn't try to make us believe you can chloroform a cat,' laughed Anne. "'It was all the fault of the knot-hole,' protested Phil. It was a good thing the knot-hole was there," said Aunt Jamesina rather severely. Kittens have to be drowned, I admit, or the world would be overrun. But no decent grown-up cat should be done to death unless he sucks eggs. 
"'You wouldn't have thought Rusty very decent if you'd seen him when he came here,' said Stella. "'He positively looked like the old Nick.' "'I don't believe old Nick can be so very ugly,' said Aunt Jamesina, reflectively. "'He wouldn't do so much harm if he was. I always think of him as a rather handsome gentleman.'" End of chapter 16 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.